Our passage today is the sixth chapter of 1 Corinthians and the first eight verses. We are not only going to look at this passage, however, because what it does is to open up to us the whole question of how to handle disputes and problems between believing people, between different Christians with different views uh, and in cases where one Christian has sinned against another. How are we to handle that sort of situation? And in case this should seem a rather barren subject to pursue, I'm going to enlist the help of an Old Testament prophet and we're going to use that section from Micah, prophet Micah in chapter 6 and verse 8, in order to guide us through this subject in, I hope, what will be a helpful and spiritual manner. These Old Testament prophets very often came up with brief statements of enormous significance and I'm going to use this one to see us through. And verse 8 of Micah 6 says this, He has shown you, O man, and of course that word means human, not males he's talking about, He has shown you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justly, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God? And in the passages we're going to look at, uh, we're going to identify an identity between that very general statement which uh, I'm going to call uh, the Micah saying or some such term for brevity. We're going to see how that statement that Micah makes here, although of course it encompasses everything, all our lives, all our thoughts, all our actions, all our words, nevertheless because it covers everything also covers the situations that we're going to be looking at when disputes and arguments arise between believers. So let us start with our passage in um, 1 Corinthians and see how it works out. Now in 1 Corinthians, apparently, Paul has been told that various people in the church at Corinth felt that the best way to deal with a dispute between two believers in the church was to go outside of the church and go to a secular court for some kind of judgment. Now, Paul is obviously dead set against this. 
And he says he's, it's to their shame that they're doing it. And he says they mustn't do it, they shouldn't do it. But I don't know whether you noticed when we read the passage that he doesn't actually give any reason. He tells them what to do, but he doesn't tell them why. What not to do, and he doesn't tell us why. Uh, you see, he explains to the Corinthians that uh, as a church they have the capacity and perhaps the responsibility to sort out problems between believers in the church. But he doesn't say why it is wrong to go outside of the church. One can envisage situations where it might be better uh, to go outside the church uh, to get a, a resolution of a dispute. Uh, but he doesn't say why we should not do that. And, and this is where uh, the Micah saying comes to our aid, I think. Because a very good case can be made that a dispute settled or adjudicated within the church is going to be much more merciful to the alleged offender than would be a court of secular law. For one thing, of course, the church is, if you like, into showing mercy. It, it's a big feature of church life that mercy should be shown. In fact, last week we had a prime example of that. The adulterer who Paul insists must be put out of the church to save contaminating the church with his lifestyle and attitude towards sexual immorality. And at first, of course, the church didn't want to do that. They were rather proud of being inclusive enough to keep such people in their membership. And Paul says, no, you must put him out. But then when we move on to the letter he wrote a year later to Corinthians, we find Paul pleading with the church to receive this man back into fellowship and embrace him in love because he has repented of his sin. That's mercy. And that's a prime example of mercy being shown within the church. Now, secular law courts, no matter how fair they might be, they're not into mercy. They don't do mercy. It's not their job. And they are primarily there, and certainly, as Paul tells us in Romans 12, the Roman legal system was there in place to punish the evildoer. Of course, they could find a man innocent. But if a man is not innocent, if a man is denounced to them, then the likelihood is that that man would receive punishment of one kind or another from the Roman system. 
And when you consider that the Roman state at that time considered Christians uh, to be enemies of the state, uh, to be a seditious movement, because they claimed that there was only one king and that was King Jesus. Whereas the Romans said, oh no, there is only one king and that is the Roman emperor. And the result of that was that uh, on and off for the first three centuries uh, since the birth of Christ, the Christian church was persecuted, sometimes bitterly, by the Roman state. So you can just imagine what would happen if one Christian denounces another Christian to uh, the Roman magistrate and ask him to come to a decision, the likelihood would be that the alleged offender would receive some severe punishment. Within the church he will get mercy. And you see, Micah says we should love mercy. So to turn this man over, as it were, to the Roman authorities, to the secular authorities, wherever they are, and whenever they are, uh, would be an act of unmercy, an act contrary to the principle of mercy. So here this reason for not passing the case to a secular tribunal seems to me to be very clearly that within the church the man will receive mercy if necessary but outside of the church he would not. The love of mercy should make us want to deal with these things within the body of Christ because there we can show mercy. Now there is a proviso that I need to add here. We're talking here about an offence of one Christian against another or perhaps an offence of one Christian against the church. But if a Christian commits a serious crime and breaks the law of the land, that crime is not against another Christian, it's against morality inside and outside the church and, and of course we have so many sad examples of that in our own uh, time. We've had churches, certain denominations and individual churches, not just one but several, who have harboured within their ranks people who have abused children in schools and orphanages and care homes. Uh, that has become a, a great scandal. It's been in the newspapers and indeed probably uh, you will find some example or reference to that in a newspaper at least once a week and sometimes more often. And in that case it would be quite wrong to appeal to this scripture to say oh no we must deal with this within the church. That is what these churches have often tried to do. They've tried to cover up the criminal offence 
by saying, well, it's, it's in church. we're dealing with it in the church. They will move this particular offender from this position to a different position. We'll send him to a different country, a different, different city. And, and so he will be out of the picture. Now that's quite wrong. I don't know honestly whether any of these reported cases would appeal to this scripture because they're not particularly Bible following churches. But nevertheless, it would be quite wrong for anyone in the church who had been guilty of uh, an offence against society not to be reported for that serious offence. I'm not talking about breaking the speed limit or dropping some litter in the street. I'm talking about serious offences which need to be reported. But otherwise, we ought to strive to resolve differences and difficulties within the church because there we are able to demonstrate mercy which a secular court wouldn't even begin to understand. I, I know that some secular courts today uh, in our own land do show mercy at the point where they sentence the person person given a lighter sentence because there are extenuating circumstances. But in the question of guilt or innocence, mercy is not a factor. So then, that's the first passage we're looking at. Now, I want then to turn to uh, a second passage, and that is Matthew chapter 18. Uh, we were there last, last week, but we're looking at uh, rather different parts of Matthew 18 now. Uh, let me read verses 15 to 20 of Matthew 18. The Lord Jesus Christ is speaking. Moreover, if your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he hears you, you have gained your brother. But if he will not hear you, take with you one or two more, that by the mouth of two or three witnesses every word may be established. And if he refuses to hear them, tell it to the church. But if he refuses, even to hear the church, let him be to you like a heathen and a tax collector. Assuredly, I say to you, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That procedure that the Lord Jesus himself gives to us, I identify with Micah's statement uh, where he says that we must do justly. We must behave in a just manner. And I see that this procedure that the Lord spells out is a just way of doing things, of dealing with the situation. 
It's just because the alleged offender gets three opportunities to defend himself. First, to the one who claims to have been offended. Secondly, to that one with two or three others. And finally, before the church. He has an opportunity to defend himself. However, one thing we must notice about this procedure, and that is that there is an implied conclusion of guilt at the outset. Guilt is presumed, and that must be obvious because the accused person has only two options, either to change his mind at some, some point in the procedure or to be thrown out of the church and treated as a heathen man and a publican. But there is no sanction in there against the person who <clears throat> claims to have been offended. No sanction whatever. And I think it's obvious, therefore, that there is a presumption of guilt from the very outset in this procedure. But nevertheless, it is a, a just procedure. If the presumption of guilt is a fair presumption, then the man is given every opportunity to change his mind, to repent, and to apologize, or whatever, is necessary, make restoration. Uh, but nevertheless, he has to change his mind. If he maintains his innocence and yet is presumed guilty, then he finishes up being thrown out of the church. So there is a limited application of this because it does not apply, although it is a just process, it does not apply to a case where there is a dispute between two people in a church, or in two Christians anyway, <clears throat> maybe in different churches, if there is a dispute where there is something to support both sides. That, 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 both sides have, have a case and there is no presumption that one is right and the other is wrong. Now how do you handle this situation because it's not covered by the Matthew 18 procedure for the reasons I've already mentioned? Well, the only guidance we get here is in Philippians and uh, I find this rather interesting. Um, in Philippians in chapter 2, and the first five verses, we read this. Therefore, if there is any consolation in Christ, if any comfort of love, if any fellowship of the Spirit, if any affection, and mercy fulfill my joy by being like-minded 
having the same love, being of one accord, of one mind. So, avoid disputes. <laughs> Don't get into a dispute. But then he goes on, let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interests, but also for the interests of others. What Paul is appealing for here is, in the case of a dispute or an argument, a disagreement between two Christians is, look, please, you have an obligation to solve this problem yourselves, to treat each other with courtesy and with fairness, uh, to reckon yourself uh, to be inferior to the other person, and if both of them, of course, do that, then there's going to be a, a very rapid settlement. And we actually see a, an example of that later in the epistle, in chapter 4, and verses 2 and 3. Philippians chapter 4, verse 2. I implore Euodia, and I implore Syntyche, to be of the same mind in the Lord. And I urge you also, true companion, help these women who labored with me in the gospel, with Clement also, and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So, what is it? It's an appeal. He's pleading with these two ladies, well-established, well-reputed, believers who've fallen out over something, I don't know what the problem was, but they've disagreed about something and it's causing friction in the church. And he says to them, look, I'm imploring you, I'm pleading with you to settle this between yourselves. And then he calls in Clement and says, look, you, you help them. You, you come beside them and, and help them resolve this issue. There's no legal procedure here. In the chapter 2 quotation, and here again in chapter 4, we see that Paul's way of dealing with a disagreement where both parties might have a case to make, he says, look, just please get together and be Christians. Be humble. Be Christ-like. Because that chapter 2 quotation, of course, immediately leads on to the statement, let this mind be in you that was also in Christ Jesus. It talks about the way the Lord Jesus humbled himself, became obedient to death, became a man, took upon him the form of a servant, even though he was in the form of God. Be like Christ. Humble yourselves. Treat others better than yourselves. Agree with people. Don't fight them. And so, as I say, it seems to me there that because the, the Matthew 18 procedure doesn't work where there is no presumption of guilt, you have nothing left in the church 
no other way in the church of dealing with these things but simply to plead with people and to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Well, I, I connect Micah's statement with that situation, with those situations, via the demand that we should do justly. Yeah, but then the last one is perhaps the most interesting of all, because we're going to turn back to the book of Leviticus, and chapter 19, and it's difficult to know where to start and where to end here. Um, I think we'll start with verse, verse 9. Because this passage deals with the way we should treat others. And it includes a couple of verses on the whole issue of judgment, judging others. But there's background here. <clears throat> when you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not wholly reap the corners of your field, nor shall you gather the gleanings of your harvest, and you shall not glean your vine vineyard, you shall not gather every grape, but you shall leave them for the poor and the stranger. I am the Lord your God. You shall not steal, nor deal falsely, nor lie to one another. And you shall not swear by my name falsely, nor shall you profane the name of your God. I am the Lord. You shall not cheat your neighbor, nor rob him. The wages of him who is hired shall not remain with you all night until morning. Pay the man the same day as he's done the work. You shall not curse the deaf, nor put a stumbling block before the blind, but shall fear your God. I am the Lord. And then he comes to our subject of, of judgment. Verse nine, 15. You shall not do any injustice in judgment. You shall not be partial to the poor, nor honour the person of the mighty. In righteousness you shall judge your neighbour. You shall not go about as a tale-bearer among your people, nor shall you take a stand against the life of your neighbour. I am the Lord. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. You shall surely rebuke your neighbour and not bear sin because of him. Now what that means is, if the neighbour deserves to be rebuked, you can rebuke him. But, providing you do so in love, then you're clear of sin yourself. If your rebuke is not done in love and for the purpose of restoration, then you will commit a sin, but you shall surely rebuke your neighbour and not bear sin because of him, because you have done it in the right way. 
Verse 18. You shall not take vengeance, nor bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Now, I see in there a reflection of Micah's statement. Because here we see a list of commands teaching us to walk humbly with our God. You notice how frequently he keeps coming back to that statement, I am the Lord. I am the Lord your God. I'm here. I'm present. I'm watching. I'm supervising. And he's teaching us that we must walk humbly. If we have a dispute with somebody else, it's quite proper for us to rebuke that person if they are in the wrong. But we must do it in love, not in hate. Not taking revenge as an opportunity presents itself to do so. Why? Because we are walking humbly with our God. What does the Lord require of you? But to do justly, to love mercy, and walk humbly with your God. That's a tremendous rule of life, isn't it? Tremendous thing to keep in mind in all that we do, but particularly it becomes extremely important when there are disputes and difficulties and disagreements between Christians. Well, I hope that's been interesting and, and perhaps useful. But if you forget everything else I have said, then do remember Micah's statement. It do you a lot of good, as it has done me a lot of good.